When all these blesses, blessings and cursings I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I commanded you today. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul, and live." And the second reading will be from Lauren. This reading will be from Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 to 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them? all over again. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, and even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if, you're, if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they, what they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal from them. It is fine to be zealous, provide the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Today we move forward in our series in Galatians, stepping into the book, meditating on the relational, psychological and communal impact that came to the churches of South Galatia after Paul had gone through, joyfully, then some other people had come in with nefarious motives and a new word or gospel, and the Galatian Christians were tempted to move away from the gospel of grace. Now, Lauren read to us a moment ago, and you can have a Bible open in front of you. The beauty of the Bible open in front of you is you'll see that what I'm saying is from the Bible, not made up. I am intending this to be a classic message uh, in the Reformed tradition of making sure I look at every verse 
of the Bible, not, not in sequence, but almost every verse that's in 8 to 20 will be on the screen, if that helps you, because I'll be able to highlight various things as you go through it, uh, but if I can put it this way, this is a classic uh, sermon where I touch in on, uh, on almost all the verses. Let us pray. Father, grant us true joy and freedom in Christ our Lord. We pray that Christ might be formed in us, that freedom is secured by Jesus, received by believing, and applied to our hearts by your Holy Spirit, whom you have freely given us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text today, Paul gets personal. In 4 verse 19. Weirdly intimate, in fact. He writes, 4 verse 19, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, writes Paul, until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Now, that's a remarkable verse. We'll come to it in our third point. But for the moment, I want to highlight these six words. What does it mean until Christ is formed in you? How can Jesus Christ, who lived then, be formed in me now? So strange. Such unusual language. So intimate. Something happening inside me. And how would our lives be different if Christ were formed in me? We'll come to that. Tom Wright says of our passage today, Bishop Tom Wright, this little section, 8 to 20, stands as a witness to the marriage of head and heart in the teaching and pastoral work that belong to the gospel. In other words, this is personal. Paul gets personal in 4 verse 12. He writes, I plead with you. Sisters, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. Paul so far in the letter has been passionate, he's been insistent, he's been persuasive, and as we've seen in the last few weeks and next week as well, he's been mounting an argument embedded within the Jewish Torah to persuade the Galatian Christians who are Gentile, not Jewish, to live free from Jewish Torah, to live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved them and gave his life for them. They don't need to go to Jewish Torah, back to slavery. They don't need to Judaize to become Jewish as though Gentile believers were somehow second class. Bishop Tom Wright again, Paul knows that there can be no outer circle and inner circle in the kingdom of God. As we learned a few weeks ago, no economy class. Paul gets personal in 4 verse 13. He tells them their shared history. He says, remember when we met? It's dripping with memory. As you know, let me appeal to this. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And that illness was ugly for you and for me. And even though my illness, verse 14, was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn, which you could have. Instead of that, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. That illness that 
brought me to you for convalescence, presumably. It was ugly. You could have just rejected me, but you didn't. You treated me as if I were Christ Jesus himself. And so he writes in verse 15, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Scholars argue about what the illness was that brought Paul to them. But the illness itself wasn't fun for them or for Paul, although the gospel of grace was. Maybe he had eye trouble. Hence, you would have torn your eyes out for me. Later, he will write, see with what large letters I write with my own hand, indicating perhaps an eye problem. But more likely, 4 verse 15 is just a way of saying, you do anything for me. Could have been that he was being persecuted and had turned up with his flesh stripped from a beating. But in these verses, you catch a glimpse of their first friendship. What happened when the gospel fires of grace were lit under the Galatians. He said, in that moment, I became like you. I was a Jew, but I lived with you as a Gentile. I ate the the bacon and cheese burgers. You know, I, I lived that way, free in Christ. And since I became like you, you need to become like me. In other words, to stay a Gentile, to stand firm, free from Torah. Let God do his work inside of you rather than the observance of the flesh. Become like me, resisting the agitators for Christ's sake, even if it costs you, even if it results in persecution. In other words, join the resistance movement. He says, back then you were freed from idols that were no gods. You were happy in Christ, committed to the gospel, liberated from Torah, and positive towards Paul. And so Paul then asked in verse 15 the $64 million question, Where then is all your blessing of me now? Where's it all gone? Has it evaporated? All the joy and the happiness you and I shared? We were once having a good time. But now you're on the cusp of being enslaved by Torah, bitter, judgmental. You'll find that out later in the chapter if you keep on biting and devouring each other. So whatever these agitators, these people who came in, whatever their motive, whatever the outcome, it resulted in a lot of like finger-pointing. A lot of destabilizing. And you were angry at the Apostle Paul. What happened? What happened? This verse 15 is a tricky little verse to translate. But its meaning is clear. In the old King James Version, it was, uh, it was where then is the blessedness you spake of? In other words, you used to speak about me in happy ways. Or perhaps the simplest translation is the old NIV, What has happened to all your joy? The word for joy or blessedness there, as in the Beatitudes, is about um, uh, happiness, uh, but not just um, flippant happiness, but an abiding, living happiness. And so he writes, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth about the grace of God? Grace, by the way, is very hard to swallow if you're stuck in old ways. Grace is very hard to swallow if you're convinced that you're an okay person and that God might sort of otherwise round off my good life. But unless you see the grace of God shown as Jesus Christ has been saying through the series as upturning not just the world, 
but by life. It'll be hard to swallow. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? What happened? Now, this question here is a question we could ask ourselves. What has happened to all your joy? And I reckon some of you know the answer. You can trace it. You lost the joy, like losing a set of car keys. You're like, where did they go? Where did it go? And some of you might say, I don't know what happened. Maybe I just got older. You know, maybe the passion of youth. I lost it. Things got harder. With the difficulty of things that happen to the bones of my aging body comes a difficulty of finding joy in my life. Or maybe this or that happened to me, a tragedy, an illness, a grief, and I just lost my joy. Or maybe it was a dashed hope. I thought by this stage in my life I would have been this or that, perhaps a domestic arrangement, happily married, but I'm not married or happily married and I find marriage hard. Or maybe I thought my kids would turn out to be this or that, wonderful citizens, but my grandchildren or my child is having a difficult time or maybe I'm not getting the... I thought things would be funner than they are, and they're not fun. Of course, the Apostle Paul will say in this letter and in, throughout his writings that the joy is meant to be in the Lord, not in the domestic arrangement or my children or my holiday or my work. The joy is meant to be in the Lord, not located in the feelings or the job or the relationship that you missed or the kids. We lift up our hearts to the Lord. I love, by the way, in the communion service when the minister says, lift up your hearts, and you respond by saying, what do you say? We, we lift them up to the Lord. In the Latin, by the way, it's up hearts. That's what the Latin is, up hearts. And you say, up to the Lord. That's what it is in Latin. And I know it was not intended to be this way, but I like to think of lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord, as a rebuke to the minister who's speaking to you. I say to you, up hearts. And you say, no to the Lord. I say, cheer up. You say, if we're going to be cheerful, we're cheerful in the Lord. Now, I know that's not the intention, but I like to read it that way. It turns out the joy was not in the things, the marriage, the kids, the holiday, the job. As C.S. Lewis famously said, it was only passing through them to some, something bigger. He says, in surprised by joy, because uh, he experienced lots of grief in the loss of his wife, joy, his wife's name. <laughs> he writes this, joy itself, considered simply as an event in my own mind, mustered up from within. Got to be happy now. Up hearts. Joy itself, considered simply as an event of my own mind, turned out to be of no value at all. All of value lay in that of which joy was desiring, was heading somewhere. And that object quite clearly was no state of my own mind or body at all. We rejoice in the Lord. Whatever it was, perhaps you've lost your taste for life. You can no longer read with joy. The things you used to enjoy, you don't anymore. Nothing on the TV. Alcohol doesn't solve the problem. It just exacerbates it. You don't take joy in singing anymore or the music. And perhaps even more deeply, you find church hard for any number of reasons, but one of them might be because the presence of a community of faith, hope, and love 
holds out the hope of joy. It specifically holds it out. And because it specifically holds it out, it effectively teases me of something that I find elusive, that I simply can't find. What has happened to all your joy? Well, let's look at these dozen verses and see if there's wisdom about what Paul says to the Galatians about how they've lost their blessedness. Three things that Paul says to them. He says, you forgot your testimony, you listened to the wrong people, and you didn't properly divine their motive. And thirdly, you need a deeper discipleship, which conveniently is our first mission goal at Church Hill. Firstly, you forgot your testimony. I want you to look at verses 8 to 11, and Paul will say, remember your conversion story. Remember how you were liberated. Remember what happened after my illness to you. What happened is that they, became, they came to know God personally, and they were liberated from a bondage to gods of wood and stone that are no gods at all, but, you know, ironically, and this is all the way through the Jewish scriptures, enslaved them because they had to keep turning up. But it was all superstition. And so he writes in verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You're enslaved. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces by giving in to those people, those agitators who are asking you to submit to Jewish Torah? I love verse 9, by the way, because you get a glimpse into the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now, something happened. And when that thing happened, now that you know God personally, and then Paul, it's hard not to imagine him reflecting and saying, actually, let me just correct that for a moment. But now that you know God, correction, or rather unknown by God. Remember when you were trying to find him, thinking that it was all about your religious pursuit with all your pagan rituals and guesswork and superstition and with it slavery? Remember that crazily, like being born a second time, he found you. That, by the way, is the testimony of all Christians. And he rescued you from slavery to the base elements, the gods of wood and stone, the things of this life, the very thing that Israel was forced to worship when they were put into exile for their sin in disobeying God's law. Paul writes, in a sense, to return to those kosher rules is to put yourself under the very thing that led Israel into the slavery in the first place, the sin that was within. What they needed was some work of God inside them, a circumcision not of the flesh, but of the heart, as that first reading that Ella read to us so ably was about. This promise embedded into the Torah of a thing within. And so he writes, since you have come to know God, or rather have been known by him, Verse 9, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? He tells them then what they're doing in verse 10. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And so he says to them, look back at your past. Remember it. Remember your story. 
Look at the freedom you felt then. Look at how you were liberated when you first believed. I was the one that told you that. And you were like, wow, thank you. Why go back? It would have been a waste if you do not just of your energy, but of mine too. I fear for you the summer I've wasted my efforts on you. When I became a Christian, which was probably, probably at age 18 at university, which I think was the time when I would have added Paul's correction in. I think at age 15, 16, 17, I would have said that I know God. But I think at age 18, I would have said, or rather I've been known by him. Now, this is what I'm about to say. My own testimony is not the same thing that the Galatians were under. And yet, it might serve to explain something of the application of this, this part of, of, of Paul's message. Up to that point, I'd only ever felt the heavy hand of God. I didn't get it from my parents, really. I don't know where I got it from. But I always thought, there's a God and there's a judgment. And if that be true, then there can be nothing else more important. So if I can put it this way, if you look at me for just a moment, I felt the heavy hand of God above me. Um, if I can put it this way, I felt an exile for my sin. That was clear to me and obvious to me. It was the one thing that was obvious to me because I took God seriously. But when I heard the gospel at university, the University of Sydney, an EU lecture, 1988, I walked out of that room in Carslaw and I felt his light and lifting hand. Like it's not that I gave up the heavy hand of God. There was a will, and he was going to judge the quick and the dead. I knew that still. But I knew more deeply and more abidingly the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God for my sin. If you look at me for a moment, this heavy hand of God, but the light hand of God lifting me up hearts, right? It's this space in which I began to live. And I think this space here is living within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And when I was lifted up out of my darkness, I became fairly passionate. Uh, some people called me the Manning Evangelist. And uh, if you know the University of Sydney, this photo here is a picture of, uh, not me, but uh, a photo I found on the internet of the glorious era of the cafe called Manning at the University of Sydney. Perhaps I didn't want to go to class, but I love talking to people about Jesus. And it bubbled up within me, and maybe it was gifting, maybe it probably wasn't. More likely, it was joy that motivated me. I love the testimony of John Newton, who was a slave trader before he discovered that he was the slave to sin. He, was a, he needed to be liberated. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace, my fears relieved. There you go. What other line describes this experience? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Have you got a moment when you were liberated by the gospel? Being liberated and going back to the base elements of this life is like... Israel being freed from Egypt and saying, I want to go back. Because to live in slavery is always easier than to live in freedom. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So you forgot your testimony. Secondly, 
you listen to the wrong people in verses 17 and 18. 17 and 18 are fascinating. Because in verses 17 and 18, Paul writes what the intent was of the agitators who came in after Paul. Verses 17 and 18 give you the modus operandi, the motive of all religious control freaks. And in fact, all control freaks. He writes, those people who came after me and said that you were second class as Gentile Christians without circumcision, without Torah, they are zealous to win you over. They They want to couple you to them, but for no good. What they want, right, here's the motive, what they really want is to decouple you from us. What they really want, if you examine their motives, is to alienate you from us so that you can be coupled to them, so that you might have zeal for them. Just because someone is passionate and zealous doesn't mean they have the truth. Passion can be spellbinding. Zeal can be hard to resist. And Paul, of all people, knows this. He was once a zealot for the Torah from the Jewish ways handed down to him. But you can see in this passage, via that motive, that one of the outcomes of zealousness is sometimes tribalism, decoupling someone from the gospel in order to make them passionate about them. The agitators came in and were using a biblical idea to gain control. You can see how confusing it might be for those new Christians. Namely, if you read your Bible, if you read the Jewish scriptures, you read one of the markers or for circumcision, and if you're going to take the Bible seriously, then you should be circumcised. But Paul says they don't firstly understand the trajectory of the Bible. They don't get it. But secondly, they have a motive that you'll love them, praise them, couple themselves to them, be zealous for them, be loyal to them. We have a phrase for this, by the way. It's dog whistling. Some call it a shibboleth. You know that phrase? A shibboleth. Is any custom or tradition particularly a speech pattern that distinguishes one group of people from another. You say it, and all your tribe come running. Paul says this drive to make the Gentile Christians follow Jewish Torah, it's tribalism. Paul's not really with us, decouple from him. He's not doing my thing, our thing, our way. So if you're serious about God, you'll be serious about my issue, and you'll say and do the right things, meaning the things that I say, and then we can be friends. And all that dynamic is quite psychologically powerful for those who are hungry for acceptance. But it becomes, in the end, anti-grace. Paul says, it is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to do so not just when I'm with you. Beware of people who act in ways that control, especially by making people jump through hoops Do not give them your voice. Do not lend them your ears. Join the resistance movement that began with Jesus towards the Pharisees who burdened people. C.S. Lewis again, a pharisaical world of mint, dill, and cumin counting is not the world that God intended. Christianity, or the gospel of grace, replaces our dour, tasteless food with feasting. It replaces water with wine. It replaces minimalist silence and clashing cacophony with a symphony. It means to fill the world with laughter and joy. And not just any laughter and joy, as long as you're happy, that's the main thing. 
but rather joy in the Lord, because that's the only thing that's not slavery to the gods of wood and stone. This life now, base elements. You forgot your testimony, you listen to the wrong people, and you need a deeper discipleship. I want to, you to concentrate for a few minutes on these six words. Paul writes, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. You're crazy to go under slavery again. Bishop Tom Wright calls those six words a pure statement of Christian formation. How God forms in you the sort of person God wants you to be because of creation. And indeed, it's an activity that God does inside of you, not circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart. Paul depicts himself here as a woman. Paul depicts himself here as a woman giving birth. And strangely, he's giving birth a second time, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. The first time being when they became Christians. But this time, it is until Christ is formed in you. I've not given birth. My wife has four times. Paul's here saying, like a woman in childbirth, I was in agony. Wanting a beautiful thing to take place. For life to be given. I was in agony until Christ is formed in you. What is this? First, it is describing something miraculous, not merely humanist. Paul doesn't say here, I was in agony until you became a good person, until you became a civilized human or learned ethics again. Something going on here is miraculous. God is doing something inside of you, circumcising your heart. Christ formed in you. Jesus Christ, who lived then, formed inside of you now. Perhaps Paul is talking about the new heart promised in the book of Ezekiel that comes through the Spirit of God from outside of you, but placed inside of you. Christ formed in you. Secondly, it appears here that Christ formed in you is in the first instance that you hold the line of the gospel. I'm in agony that you're tempted to give up on the gospel. Christ formed in you then is that you choose not to go back and be enslaved under Torah, which you can't keep. It's led to the slavery of Israel in exile. I don't want that for you. What I want is for you to live within the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. So Christ formed in you will be to refuse the pressure of the agitators and their motives. Third and finally, Christ formed in you, read in light of Galatians 5, and indeed the whole letter, is that the God will bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life, that you'll let God remove from you the acts of the flesh and then form in you love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control. Perhaps Paul here is talking about being mature in Christ, as he will say to the Colossians, or like Jesus Christ, but bubbling up from within, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. 
So today we get personal. What has happened to all your joy? The gospel brings joy. Living within the faithfulness of the Son of God brings about freedom. What counts is a new creation and not going back to old slaveries. This brings relational health and psychological health and communal health. There are other factors of play, of course. All of those things have many complex factors at play. But at the very base level, the gospel brings relational, psychological, and communal help. Why? Because it speaks of a great love, the greatest love of all, a divine love without you having to embrace any evil. This is not about relativism. It speaks of a great forgiveness for sin while maintaining right and wrong as real categories. And it speaks of grace from God and therefore grace shared in community. It speaks of a freedom and not of slavery. But it's a long game because, like Israel out of Egypt, when they were liberated in that other exodus, it was easy to forget in the wilderness what God had done in his act of redemption. The gospel is the answer and not control. Let's pray. Father, it's tempting through the ordinary experiences of life to forget the joy and passion and lightness that came when we first believed and then to get stuck in the base activities of life, uh, the things of this world. But I pray that you'd lift up our hearts to the Lord. And I pray that you do that to us over time, especially for those of us who know the experience of losing the joy. I pray that you'd help us to join the resistance movement to reclaim again the beauty and truth and power of the gospel of grace that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I pray that over time, that Christ will be formed in us. I think that Paul was in agony that Christ might be formed in those Galatian Christians then. And I pray that you give us people who would agonize over us that Christ might be formed in us, people who care enough uh, to see us liberated and living in the grace that come through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.